I'm Dennis Foley. Now, here's Jack Riccardi. All right, Dennis, I was going to say, I'm sure you would do this anyway, but please jump in anytime you have any weather updates for us this afternoon. We're all watching those screens, and it, it does look like most of this weather is to our north, but, uh, you know, whatever you see or hear about, please let us know. Just jump right yeah, in. Absolutely. All right, verbally jump right in. Uh, well, uh, you know, I had a, a boss tell me years ago, you know, you have those meetings where you, you kind of like, uh, what are we doing here? And what's the purpose of the talk radio? And he said, the, the goal here, the purpose here, and I leaned forward because I thought this is going to be profound. He said, the goal is to bust hypocrites. And you know, that is what we do a lot of. You think about all the topics, all the things we talk about, all the people we talk about, a lot of it is hypocrisy, right? Hypocrisy in sports, hypocrisy in entertainment, hypocrisy in politics. And and um, we are kicking off, I mean, t- today was the opening ceremonies of the Hypocrisy Olympics over Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. Now, I'm not putting any of this on her. None of this is her fault. She's been nominated by President Biden to the Supreme Court. And all you can really say about Judge Jackson is she's qualified to be on the federal bench where she is now. She's qualified to be on the Supreme Court if she's confirmed to it. She's been nominated not because of her qualifications, but because she's an African-American woman. The president told us that. Moreover, she's been nominated because the um, the way we now do Supreme Court nominations is we treat the Supreme Court as kind of a Congress on steroids. It's like a third house of Congress with appointed instead of elected members. And I was going to say appointed for life, but a lot of members of Congress seem to serve for life too. So I'm not sure if that distinction matters. But the the Supreme Court is what it is today in our public life because, as Senator Ben Sass famously pointed out a few years ago, politicians of the elected kind are such cowards that they don't legislate the differences in the disputes of American life. Instead, they punt those things to the courts. The courts do it, and that makes the courts more important. The courts issue edicts. The courts issue rulings that become law, right? But what we should be doing, whether it's gay marriage or anything else, what we should be doing is debating, deliberating, legislating, but they don't want to do it because they're cowards. And that's what's made not only Supreme Court nominations, but even federal court nominations so contentious and dramatic in recent years. Well, now here's where the hypocrisy comes in. So leading up to today's first day of hearings, and Judge Jackson gave her opening statement, Republicans are bringing up her history. They're bringing up her history as a judge and her history as a, as a lawyer. They're bringing up patterns in her jurisprudence. One example, Senator Josh Hawley, who's the former attorney general of his state, uh, Missouri, uh, has brought up his concerns about her record as a trial judge when it comes to sentencing decisions in child pornography cases. It's not going to keep her off the Supreme Court, but it's part of her record. It's legitimate to bring it up. In response, some liberal commentators like Ellie Mistel on MSNBC says Josh Hawley is trying to get 
Judge Jackson killed. Now, these are the people, the American left are the people who a few years ago, when it was Brett Kavanaugh up for the Supreme Court, did not stop at his jurisprudence and his record as a judge and lawyer. Remember, they concocted a smear campaign in which he was a serial rapist and a pervert and an alcoholic. I mean, he was practically Hannibal Lecter and Lee Harvey Oswald rolled into one. These are the people who are now bemoaning what is going to happen or they think is going to happen with Judge Jackson. So the process they crafted is now one they don't want to see carried out. And that's hypocrisy. And, you know, when you think about it, the um, we can't believe the other side is doing this is the height of kind of Orwellian doublespeak, right? So you pretend people won't remember what you did when the other side copies what you did. I don't know if the Republicans will copy what they did to Kavanaugh. I don't know if they'll I don't know if they'll go deep and go personal with Judge Jackson. I, I suspect they won't, but but even if the Democrats fear that or or believe that is true, this is their script. They wrote it, and now of all people they should not be objecting to its being performed. You know, I, I think there are legitimate things you want to know about a Supreme Court nominee. I think one of them, Senator McConnell has pointed this out, uh, that they should have to answer nowadays is do they believe in court packing? I think that's a legitimate question. It wouldn't have been before uh, candidate Joe Biden talked about packing the Supreme Court, and, and so many Democrats seem to favor doing that. But since that's in the uh, in the mix again, that's a legitimate question. Yeah, things you did as a judge, the way that you adjudicated cases and sentencing and lectures you gave and opinions you wrote and papers you delivered, those are all legitimate. The stuff they ran on Kavanaugh, the boofing and burping and, you know, which party did you go to and how many beers, not not legitimate. But if that were to happen, how can they object to it is my question. 210-599-5555. There is a new variant of COVID called BA2. And BA2 is supposedly the reason there are there is an uptick in COVID cases in Europe and in the UK. And they asked Dr. Fauci about this. Dr. Fauci started making the rounds again this weekend on the Sunday morning shows. And they asked him about it. And he said, I hope we don't see a surge. And I hope we don't see an uptick like they've seen in Europe. But I don't think we're going to go back to restrictions. But you have to have the flexibility to go back to restrictions. So he's back. Really, I think we have to ask ourselves. We, we know what people like Dr. Fauci would like to do. They would like to, at the first opportunity, they would like to go back to 15 days to flatten the curve. They would like to go back to mandates and orders. He would like, I think, to go back to the kind of relevance and prominence that he had before. But here's my question to you, and I really would like to know what you think about this. Remember after 9-11 when um, we learned that the hijackers used a box cutter to take a plane, to control it, to take over the cockpit, and use that plane as a weapon of terror, a weapon of war. 
And after 9-11 and after the, the shock and the grieving, a lot of people said, and I was one of them, that you'll never be able to do that again. You'll never be able to take a plane like that. People will not sit still for a hijacking, at least not one like that, where four guys, uh, you know, with, with a box cutter take the plane. And the reason you wouldn't be able to do it is that now that people know what you might be ultimately going to do, not just land the plane in some other city, but kill them, kill all of them, and kill people on the ground, now that people know that, you wouldn't be able to do it. The hijackers would be overwhelmed by the passengers. So the, 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 the sort of the, the legend of this is you'll never be able to repeat that MO because now people are wise to it. Is that also the case with COVID lockdowns and restrictions? Could, could you really never do that again? Could you really never pull that on people again? Would people just not sit still for that? They asked an expert in the UK about it the other day, and he said, no, people would riot. People would disobey. There'd be mass disobedience. There'd be rioting. Uh, he, he's the president of the Royal Society of Medicine, Professor Robert Kirby, and he warned politicians, do not try to impose the kind of lockdowns that you did last time. He's not He's not saying that so much as a doctor or scientist. He's just saying it as an observer of the human condition. He says people won't do it. We're on the two-year mark of the widespread lockdowns. It's been about two years. And he said locking people down again, people wouldn't tolerate it. There'd be riots. So what do you think about that? Are we in a box cutter kind of situation where people will never go go through that, accept that, obey that again? Or do you think people, are there are enough people that still crave and, and feel comfort in being told what to do and ordered around, and is there still enough credibility with the Dr. Fauci's of the world? And again, I'm not asking just you how you feel about it. I'm asking you, how do you judge people would would react. I'm not asking you what would you do. You might say, well, I know I'm not going to do it, Jack, but I'm asking you what do you think people would do? If they go back to their playbook, Fauci says we're not going to go back to our playbook, but you know they want to. If they go back to their playbook, how does it, how does it play out? Um, our next guest, uh, Gordon Chang, uh, tweeted out uh, at Gordon G. Chang on Twitter, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have launched a war on the rules-based international order, and they will use a victory there to go after us, he writes. He joins us on the KTSA Kinetico Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line, the author of books like The Coming Collapse of China and The Great U.S.-China Tech War. Gordon Chang, welcome back. Good afternoon to you. Thank you so much, Jack. I really wanted to talk to you today because I wanted to understand what China's angle is here. I mean, um, everybody immediately jumped to the connection of, well, uh, he's doing to Ukraine what they want to do to Taiwan, but they certainly wouldn't want to be bogged down in Taiwan the way he appears to be in Ukraine. Well, certainly. But I think Xi Jinping's main motivation has to do with the United States. Um, they see the United States as an existential threat. They call us an enemy openly, and so um, they think that anything that bleeds us, including a Russian losing effort in Ukraine, is good for China. They believe that the United States is uh, not going to be able to uh, defend Ukraine, and so therefore our reputation with uh, the free world is going to be diminished, and that's exactly what they want. Mm -hmm. 
Do they have to watch their reputation in terms of the one belt, one road kind of diplomacy they do? Is there there a a danger to their brand if they're openly supporting Putin? There certainly is, and that's why they do try to distance themselves. But they are um, financing Putin's war with these elevated commodity purchases, oil, gas, coal, wheat, and they're making their financial system available to the sanctioned Russian institutions, the ones that we kick off SWIFT. They can then join SIPS, which is China's alternative. And, of course, their diplomats are propagating these Chinese narratives, I mean, the Russian narratives, and the big propaganda machines of the Communist Party and the central government. They're amplifying what Russia is saying, even the ludicrous things that they're saying. So you can see that Beijing is all in on uh, Russia's side. Now, Beijing's ambassador to the United States went on Face the Nation yesterday and said, oh, no, we're not uh, providing military assistance. We're providing food, medicine, sleeping bags, and baby formula. Uh, what, what is your reaction to that? Well, there's open source reporting that China is supplying Russia with information that Russia can use to target Ukrainian drone operators. Because the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian operators are actually using Chinese-made drones from DJI, the world's largest, bigger, uh, biggest uh, maker of drones. And, and that gives um, Russia a very important advantage because they can take out these drone operators. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're already supplying military intelligence. I mean, what more do we need to see that uh, China is indeed backing Russia to 100%? So what should our play be or our reaction be to China uh, getting in on and and coming in on the side of of Putin? And I ask you that because, let's face it, it's one thing to post the Ukrainian flag colors on your Facebook page. It's one thing for all these celebrities to virtue signal their support of Ukraine and their hatred of Putin. But we all know from entertainment to big corporations, they're afraid of China, they're intimidated, they won't speak up about past atrocities. It's hard for me to imagine we would see the kind of, um, you know, social media war against China that we're seeing against Russia. Well, the one thing the Biden administration can do is impose on China the same sanctions it imposes on Russia. Uh, We shouldn't be talking to China anymore. You know, President Biden had that uh, nearly two-hour phone call, uh, video call with Xi Jinping on Friday. And that followed Monday's seven-hour meeting in Rome between Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, and Yang Jiaxi, China's top lip- diplomat. We're getting nowhere talking to China, so we should just um, impose this most severe cost on Beijing to give them an incentive to do the right thing. Until we do that, um, these warnings that we issue are just hollow. Can we can we do that though? I mean, you you look at the NBA, you look at Nike, you look at General Motors. They're afraid to sneeze in the direction of China. They don't want to. They, they they openly you know bow down. Uh, and I just it's hard for me to imagine them and a government they support suddenly taking the position you're advocating. I understand why you're advocating it, but is that is that something that's realistically ever going to happen? Well, not in this administration, um, which believes that it's in our interest to support the Communist Party because they want uh, Beijing to help them on climate change and an Iran nuclear deal. Um, But, yeah, this is something that the administration can do. You know, we really can't expect any company or any basketball league to stand up to China. But the U.S. government can because we've got so much more power than China has. China right now is actually quite fragile for a number of reasons. 
And so we, we've been intimidated by Beijing. But if we had a president who was willing to protect America, which we don't right now, but if we did, then that president would be using his powers under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977, would be using powers that uh, the president has under other pieces of legislation in order to protect America. And Biden's not doing it. Speaking of the fragility of China right now, I also wanted to ask you, what is going on with COVID there? They've suddenly started reporting cases and deaths. They went over a year, claiming for over a year they hadn't had a single COVID death. So, And they've got, as we know, millions of people in one of their biggest cities locked down. What's going on? Yeah, uh, they had not reported deaths since January 26, 2021. They reported deaths at the end of last week, two of them in Jilin province, which is in the northeast part of the country. But uh, Omicron has ripped through all parts of China, and we're seeing these lockdowns. For instance, the city of Shenzhen um, in the Pearl River Delta near Hong Kong. Um, Shanghai has problems. Um, Jilin, as I just mentioned, is really in a very terrible position. Um, because China doesn't have an effective vaccine. So their only defense against this disease is isolation. And that's what they're doing. And that undermines their economy, of course. I know that their uh, economic growth had slowed down as well. So what are the things besides COVID and, and, and a slowdown in their growth, their GDP, what are the things that make them fragile in your words? They've got a debt crisis right now. Um, we don't know exactly how much debt China has accumulated, especially since 2008, um, but it could very well be somewhere on the order of 350 to 400% of gross domestic product. Um, there have been companies that have been defaulting, especially since September, Evergrande, the property company. But you've also got, and, and you have a stagnant economy, so they're not producing really the output to service the debt. Then you've got uh, worsening food shortages, which is a real problem in China right now, a deteriorating environment, and uh, COVID, which makes it very difficult for them. But they've also got a demography crisis. Um, they're going to lose half their population in the next 45 years, according to, to two Chinese demographers, could lose two-thirds of their population by the turn of the century. This is something that is the steepest demographic decline in history in the absence of war or disease. Mm. So your your advice to policymakers in Washington would be not only use the tools you have in the toolbox, but this is actually your, your an advantageous moment uh, to use them. In other words, you'd be saying you have a lot more options than you're pretending you do. Oh, certainly, um, because China right now needs the U.S. market, um, because to the extent that its economy is moving forward, it's only because of exports. Last year, um, 58% of China's merchandise trade surplus related to sales to the U.S. That's according to Chinese numbers, which underplay China's dependence on the U.S. When we get the U.S. Department of Commerce numbers, that number is going to go up. But even 58% is an enormous dependence on the U.S., so we have China where we want them. It's just that we don't have the political will. We have this notion that uh, China's going to help us on all sorts of things, which is ridiculous, because they actually say, you know, we're the enemy, and we just mm -hmm. pretend that the Chinese don't say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a long history of that with Al-Qaeda, Putin, China. Um, follow them on Twitter, at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon Chang, always thank you uh, for the time. We always learn, and we always appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Jack. I always appreciate right. it. Thank you. Um, yeah, the the uh, Supreme Court nomination hearings for Judge Jackson have begun. We've been talking about the hypocrisy of 
Democrats uh, saying, hey, don't get personal, don't, don't get crazy. These are the people that went completely off the rails over Brett Kavanaugh. Look, I'm not saying I, I, I want that. I, I don't. Okay, they've got the votes for Judge Jackson. The Republicans can't stop her. They're not going to. Um, they're right to bring up stuff that's part of her, you know, jurisprudence, part of her record. Um, but I don't want to find out, you know, how she partied in college or whatever. I'm not interested in that. No one is. And and I mean, to, to just to hear the hypocrisy, you would think these people have forgotten, or more specifically, they want you to forget the jive they ran on Brett Kavanaugh just a few years ago. Oh, this is awful. And then we have um, Dr. Fauci, who says, you know, we might have to bring back uh, those COVID restrictions of yore if the BA2 variant does hear what it's doing in the UK and Europe. But could you really ever talk to people that way again could you really ever order people into their homes could you really ever tell businesses hey you got to shut down you know you forget because so much time has gone by how much of the restrictions and the lockdowns were really obedience not force i mean if push came to shove there was force but a whole lot of it was just people going, oh, okay, I guess they must have good reason for it. I guess they know what they're doing. I, I can't believe we're doing this, but okay. Maybe you did some of that. I don't know that you could get away with that twice, at least not so soon. I want to think you couldn't. The president of the Royal Society of Physicians in, in Britain says you couldn't. People wouldn't take it. They will not be re- receptive to that again. Is he right? Or could you do it again? 210-599-5555 or jack at ktsa.com. Your thoughts on that? We're going to talk about it. Don, let me know when you have that uh, that person on the line because I can't... Okay, I can't see the screen right now, just so you know. Um, it, it's sort of like, if you think about it this way, the lockdown... The, 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 the original uh, premise for the lockdowns was it'll just be short. It'll just be temporary. And that wasn't true. And then it was, we're going to stop the virus, and that wasn't true. And then it was going to be, kids are resilient. And they'll be fine with distance learning, and that wasn't true. Not only did their education suffer, but they suffered. And not just kids. There's a study out today that says alcohol-related deaths in the United States spiked by more than 25% in the first year of the pandemic. And the experts at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism say that's not surprising. People drink more when they're under duress and when they're alone. Both of those things were imposed all of a sudden. So you had social isolation, media hysteria, and then it didn't it didn't pay off we had the virus anyway so i i don't think based on that just based on the logic of that i don't think you could ever do it again but then every so often i look around and i see somebody driving by themselves in their car with a mask on 
walking outside alone with a mask on. And I think that might be somebody who would welcome, who would be relieved to know that we were going back into restrictions and shutdowns. That might be somebody that that secretly misses those days. They're not going to say that. But if there's enough of those people and that's how they feel, maybe you get away with it again. What do you think about Gordon Shang? He said that the Biden administration should just lay it right on the line with China. This is a vulnerable time for them. I, 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 he didn't say it. I won't put words in his mouth. But I, I think we all know that the Biden administration is not going to be the administration to ever take a hard line on China. Totally conflicted business interests up the wazoo. China is their number one customer at Biden Incorporated. So that isn't going to happen. But it's interesting to hear the perspective of somebody that watches that country, knows a lot about it, and and understands what they're doing right now with Putin, but also understands the, the leverage we would have. Um, I just I think what would be different about China if we were to if we were to lay it on the line with them over this support of the invasion of Ukraine, you would not see American companies and American celebrities uh, getting on board with that. You know, if they're afraid, if the NBA, if General Motors, if Nike, if they're afraid of China under ordinary times and circumstances, then they certainly would not engage in a sort of social media, you know, shunning or censoring of uh, of the Beijing regime. And, and that tells you really pretty much everything you need to know about what's going on right now. So the support for Ukraine. The admiration of Ukraine, the the the, the uh, mass denunciation of Putin, which is all richly deserved. Don't get me wrong, but the people doing it, a lot of them are only doing it because it's not costing them anything, because they can't see any way that it would hurt them. You know, they've they figured out the cost benefit analysis. There's no cost, but there's a cost with China. So if you if you were to see, you know, take your pick, a, a major American corporation uh, or um, a major institution of our culture scold China for giving military aid to, to Russia or allying with Russia or supporting or making excuses for the, the rape of Ukraine, if you were to see that, that would be something. Because that would mean somebody was willing to pay a price for standing up and saying the right thing, but they're not—they're not going to do it. I don't think. I'm such a cynic, I know, but I just don't think they are. Uh, and by the way, speaking of Ukraine, um, I keep hearing all these stories. I just saw one on Fox a little while ago about the massive refugee uh, dilemma that's happening in in Eastern Europe. All these Ukrainians are fleeing their war-torn country. Did you know that only seven Ukrainians, as of yesterday, only seven Ukrainian refugees had been legally admitted to the United States? The Biden administration has finally found its immigration law book. I guess they, they, they misplaced it. Until now, all of a sudden, they're hardliners on immigration. You can't just come into this country, they're saying. You've got to go by a process. You're going to have to wait. We have laws, we have rules. You can't just come in. We're not going to make exceptions. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, what's the difference? They they said rules are out the window, it's an emergency. When people were coming from Central America, 
people were coming through Mexico from Africa. They said, well, these people are fleeing oppression and hardship and violence or the threat of it. Well, Ukraine has all of that. I mean, it's not exactly an all-inclusive resort right now, right? I keep, I keep noting how different they are about Ukraine versus people coming from anywhere else. And it goes back to that line that we talked about last week. Remember the line from Joy Reid? She was ranting on MSNBC about all the coverage of Ukraine. Even her own network is doing it. And she said, well, it's because they're, they're, they're white Christians. Bingo. See, these Ukrainian refugees, if you were to consider wavering them into the country, they're not going to be like the refugees' democratic politicians lick their chops over. These aren't people that crave dependency on government. These aren't people that, that will uh, say, oh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't need any rights. I just want to be taken care of. They're coming from a whole different perspective. And they're not useful. They're not, uh, they don't fit into that monolithic, we're changing the face of the American electorate, we're getting replacement voters. You know, the Democrats look at the map, they say we're losing Florida, we're losing the Midwest, we need replacement voters, we need, we're losing Hispanic voters, we're, lo- we're starting to a little bit lose African American voters, we gotta get some replacement voters, but they need voters that will be immediately dependent, compliant, grateful to them. People that have just lived through an invasion by a communist country, the last people they want. People that are deeply wedded to their faith. People that have seen firsthand the importance of gun ownership. Not the kind of immigrants the Biden administration wants. And that's why they found their, their law book. That's why they suddenly became by the book on the immigration process. They finally found an immigrant they don't want to, you know, truck in, fly in to the country. It's the Ukrainian immigrant. I'm not saying they should or they shouldn't. I'm not even getting, I'm not even going there yet. We can go there, but I'm not going there yet. I'm just pointing out this is, the, this is a first for them. In the year plus they've been in office, If you wanted to come into this country, come right in. Can we make it any easier? Can we make the door any wider for you? All of a sudden, this is different. And there's a reason it's different. It's different because these are different people. They're coming from a different experience. And they might not be. I'm not saying, and I'm generalizing, and I know I am, but, and I'm not saying it would be true of every single one of them. But in general, taken in quantity, these are not the kind of people that would do the kind of bidding that they believe the other immigrants will do. And, and they may be wrong about them, too, or some of them. But they don't see that with these Ukrainian immigrants. And um, it, it, it is kind of, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised, if anything, I'm a little surprised that the Republicans aren't pointing this out. It's just a, it's kind of a midterm talking point kind of thing. But, of course, they probably don't want to... Uh, <laughs> mix their message either, which is you got to enforce the law. Right now, at the moment, the Biden administration is acting like a by-the-books, enforcing the immigration process administration when it comes to Ukraine. Um, I, I had to, I had to tell, tell you this story because I just think it is so funny. 
Um, so Truro is a little town on um, Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And um, they have a board of selectmen that's like their city council. And a couple of weeks ago, the board of selectmen held a vote to um, permanently waive or lift all beach fees and parking fees, which is a big deal. It's a lot of money. For indigenous people because they wanted to recognize that the Wampanoag tribe had been on that land before, long before the Board of Selectmen had been. So they said, and it was a big proclamation, they will not have to pay to park. I'm not making this up. This is, this is all on the up and up from the Provincetown Independent newspaper. They had a debate on the board before they voted. They had a debate over whether it should apply only to the tribe that had been on that land 400 years ago or whether it should be for all Native American people. And they actually argued about it. They said, well, we we don't know if it makes sense to include other Native Americans. Why don't we just do this for Wampanoag Nation? And they finally decided to include others because they're hoping that other towns around the country will do this for the Wampanoags. When they go other places, they won't have to pay to park. Now, think about what they're doing here for a minute. They're virtue signaling, obviously. But think about what they're doing here for a minute. We recognize that this is your land, Native Americans, indigenous people. So we are holding a government board vote to not charge you to park on it. If it's their land, I would think not only should they not have to pay to park on it, but they should be able to do a lot more, including firing the... Board of Selectmen. Like, how how does the Board of Selectmen have any authority? The Board of Selectmen is a bunch of non-Native American people. They're they're the descendants of the white people that took the land. So, shouldn't they dissolve their board? Leave their homes? (laughs) Get the hell out of Truro, Massachusetts? I mean... It's total hypocrisy. If you if you really believed any of this, giving them free parking, I mean, come on, really? That like that's a free exchange? Yeah, we took your country, but you can park at the beach for free. Oh well, that that seems about an even exchange. Yeah, I think we're evened up now. We're we're good now. We're settled. That takes care of it. Thank you. Mm-mm. So. There's a lot of virtue signaling going on, a lot of things right now. We were talking about this earlier, and I want to get your thoughts on it. If there was uh, an uptick in COVID cases, because there might be, spring breaks over, there's this BA2 variant, there's been an uptick in Europe, there's been an uptick in China. If there was an uptick in cases here in this country, would 
politicians be able to implement, impose 2020-style lockdowns? Do you think people would go for it, would obey it? They'd grumble, but they'd do it, or they just wouldn't do it, or would they riot? What, what do you think would happen? I'm not asking you what you would do. Well, I mean, you can tell me, but I'm asking you, how do you read the, the people around you? How do you think we the people would, would do that? And to me, this is like, the, the analogy that, that, that I'm using is this is like you're on an airplane and some guys stand up with a box cutter. You're not going to sit there because you know 9-11. You know what, what could happen, and you're going you're gonna to take that plane away from them. You're going to take that box cutter away from them if you need be. You're going to kill them with your bare hands. Look at the way people on airplanes get up now and subdue other passengers when some crazy tries to open the hatch in mid-flight or something like that, right? They don't let it. They don't let it happen. They take matters into their own hands. The sitting there and letting it happen happened on September 11, 2001, and this isn't a put-down against those poor people on those airplanes, but they couldn't imagine what was going to happen to them. They wouldn't have believed it if you told them. But we who've seen it and know that history wouldn't sit there. That's the thinking. That's that's my thinking on this. So in the same way, if you lived through 2020 and you saw the not only the human toll, but also the ineffectiveness of it all, in other words, it was a failure. It wasn't just, it wasn't just illegal and unconstitutional and tyrannical. It also didn't work. My thinking is you're not going to sit there and take it. But I want to know what you think. 210-599-5555. Dr. Fauci resurfaced on some of the Sunday shows and said that um, we have to have the flexibility to go back to those restrictions. He, he doesn't think we will, but he says we might. You know, this is the biggest tool they have in their toolbox. Authoritarian restrictions are their favorite tool you know if there's any way to go back to them, they would do it. I really think the only limitation on their actions is their calculation that we wouldn't obey and there'd be too many of us and too few of them. People are done with the pandemic. And it's not, when, whenever you, you have that conversation with people, that they understand we're not done with the virus, but we're done with it being the governing force in our lives. We're done with it being the most important thing or the thing that's that's foremost in, in every decision that we make. I mean, there was a point where it it weighed into every step you took, every move you made, but, but people are done with that. They're getting on with their lives. And, you know, the other thing that's changed, and I think this is interesting, is a lot of law enforcement people have said, we will not be the mask police. We will not uh, impose rules. We will not enforce. I mean, we're, we're not going to go through that again. I look at that uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff uh, Villanueva. He has said that. He's a Democrat. He said that. We're not going to do that. What is your favorite classic rock decade? Which decade for classic rock is your favorite? That's our J.R. Poll question powered by Stevens Roofing. Is it the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, or the 80s? And I'm not hating on the 90s or the 2000s, but that wouldn't be classic rock yet. It hasn't been, hasn't, hasn't reached classic rock yet. So we're talking 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. What's your favorite classic rock decade? 
Uh, the reason I'm asking you this question is because today, 70 years ago today, is what most people believe was the first rock and roll concert. The first rock and roll concert was called the Moondog Ball. And it was hosted by a disc jockey in Cleveland named Alan Freed. And Alan Freed is considered by many, not all, to be kind of the, the founding father of rock and roll. He was a Cleveland disc jockey. That's, Alan Freed is probably the main reason the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. But he would play mostly black artists on his show using the term rock and roll. The record business used to call that music race music. That's what they called it. But he would play. He, had, he was on at night. And for a lot of his young listeners of all races, this was the first time they'd heard some of these artists, including doo-wop and early R&B uh, singers. And, and so what he would do is he would play this stuff, and he had this whole repertoire or lingo that went with it. He called himself the Moondog and rock and roll, and um, he would bang on the countertop of the studio and thump a phone book and make all these crazy sound effects and noises and talk sort of, you know off the wall and so he he developed this following so he decided to do a show at an auditorium and they sold tickets and it sold out and way more people showed up than could be accommodated and the police shut it down so the first rock and roll concert ended the way a lot of rock and roll concerts ended uh, you had to leave early and the police came and not all of the bands got to play this is what Alan Freed sounded like a few years later. Now he was in New York. He was doing shows at the Paramount Theater in New York. That's that famous New York City building that has a theater in the base level and a big clock tower on top. And here he is in 1957 with Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. Listen to this. Hello, everybody. How are you all? This is yours truly, Alan Freed. Get your dancing shoes on and welcome to the Rock and Roll Dance Party. <laughs> From New York City, the home of rock and roll, we welcome you to the big beat in popular music in America, and here's the king of rock and roll himself, Alan Freed! And welcome to our Camel Rock and Roll Dance Party. Right now, we'd like to tell you a little musical story about a young group called the Teenagers. And a story is uh, a pretty important one, especially to the youth of our country. They want to learn how to become hit stars overnight. Little Frankie Lyman, 13 years old, wrote the song and recorded it with his own vocal group called The Teenagers, heading for the million mark in sales. Here they are in person on our rock and roll dance party to sing Why Do Fools Fall in Love? <laughs> and then they did the song. You know, it was interesting. Um, I don't know if it's this, this uh, broadcast or not, but Frankie Lyman... Uh, ultimately unraveled Alan Reed's career because he did a show on ABC uh, where he had Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. And at one point, the camera cut away and it showed Frankie Lyman dancing with a white girl. And there was such a scandal about that that ABC kicked Alan Freed off the air. And uh, eventually, Alan Freed's career really took a nosedive. He went up real fast and came down real fast. Uh, as well. That's also kind of a rock and roll thing, isn't it? So, in honor of uh, the 70th anniversary 
um, today asking you your favorite classic rock decade. Which is it? 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 210-599-5555. Now, i got to play this for you. This happened um, Thursday night. I didn't get to it on Friday. This happened Thursday night. They were having a Republican Senate debate in Ohio. Ohio is a big state for the Republicans. They're turning it Republican. It's a major bellwether state. It's a it's the biggest prize in the Midwest for electoral votes. And it's a Senate seat they have right now, so it's an open race. The senator's retiring. They've got a crowded GOP field, and they had this debate. And um, two of the candidates, Josh Mandel and Mike Gibbons, get into it on stage. And as you hear this, they very nearly... Uh, you know, get into a fist fight. Take a listen to this. I can you tell filed you, that I, with the Federal Elections Commission. You well, own stock I, in Chinese I, Petro. I personally didn't buy the stock. You uh, made millions off it, sir. I don't think I made millions off of anything. I'd love to have made millions off of Chinese Petro. Uh, first of all, Shanghai Shenda and buying, Chinese Petro. Buying a second. Right, you may not understand this because you've I never been in the fully. No, you don't. I do. You've never been in the I private sector it. in your life. All right, I've worked, sir. Josh. Squat. Two tours in Iraq. Don't tell me I haven't worked. Don't tell me I haven't worked. You, you don't know squat. It's okay, right? You don't know squat. Two tours in Iraq. Don't tell me I haven't worked. Back off, buddy. You're gonna you back off. Never know. Sit down. Never. Watch. Yeah. Watch. We'll swear it away with the wrong guy. No, no, you're dealing with the wrong guy. You watch what happens. You watch what happens. All right, guys. These people, I'm telling you, I'm sorry if you're a Republican. I have to say this, though. If any party, if any political organization could F up what looks like a banner year this fall, it's the Republicans. Here they are getting into almost a fist fight in their own debate amongst themselves on television in Ohio. Asking you on the JR poll, your favorite classic rock decade. This is a hard one for me. This is a hard one for me. I, I would not say 50s uh, because that's way before my time. I don't, I don't hate the 50s. It's just not my thing. Uh, I would not say 60s. I'll explain why in a minute. So for me, it would come down to the 70s. Or the 80s. And I'm going to have to say 70s because, and this is, you're going to laugh when I say this, but I can't think of the 80s yet as classic. <laughs> I, I can't handle that, that the 80s would be classic, but they are. I mean, they are, that is classic rock. So I'm going to say the 70s. You say classic rock to me, my mind goes right to the, the, the super groups of the 70s, you know? And, uh, but it's, you know, any answer is the right answer for you. What's your, what's your classic rock go-to decade? 210-599-5555. Yeah, the, the 50s are like, um, for me, that, I'm putting that almost like in the pre-rock category. I know there was rock and roll, there was Chuck Berry and Elvis and all that, but to me that we were, we were still, coming out of the, you know, the pop big band time. The 60s, I think of as a little more of a, a poppy, pop music decade. You know, Beatles. Like, I, to me, the Beatles will always be more of a, a pop band than a rock band. I know this is, I know I'm speaking uh, heresy here, but... Um, I, 
and, and again, I'm generalizing, but that's just how it seems to me. That's just how it strikes me. That's why we ask, because everybody has their own answer to it. So you get into the 70s, and you get into that different sound, that heavier sound, and also you have bands that, um, although they have hit records, like Fleetwood Mac had a ton of hits, but Fleetwood Mac is also kind of a an album rock band, right? They, they, they Or Steely Dan, or, you know, whoever. So for me, it's kind of the... That's kind of the, the the strongest decade for classic rock would be the seventies. You can make a case for any one of these. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Um, last week and many times in the past, I've asked the question rhetorically: Why are people with a stake in this being so quiet about putting biological males in competitions with women? as if that was normal, that was okay, that was a level playing field, the NCAA is doing it. There's been a lot of talk about this uh, transgender swimmer, Leah Thomas, participating and winning. And and I, I, I marvel at the silence. I can't get over the silence. Well, now the silence has been broken by a swimmer at Virginia Tech, um, a young lady named Rika Georgie. Uh, wrote an open letter about it, which I'm going to share with you here coming up, because she's saying the things out loud that um, that more people need to say. And I, I, I said last week, I really think people see, it's pretty clear how unfair this is, how stacked this is, but people are afraid of being called names. And she talks about that. People are afraid of being called out. But she basically makes the argument, um, this is disrespectful to women. All my life, respect women, respect women, respect women. And, and I heard women told, my, my sister was brought up with the idea, you, know, you can do anything. Respect yourself. All of this imposing of biological males into female sports and competition is disrespectful, says Rika Georgie. She's right. So tell you what she had to say coming up here. 210-599-5555. We've been talking about the um, classic rock decades as well. I gave you kind of my quick and dirty explanation for how I arrived at the 70s, but want to hear your answer. 210-599-5555. Philip is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Philip, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack. Excellent topic. Uh, it's interesting you you brought this up. I'm, by the way, I'm with you the 70s all the way. And what I find so fascinating still to this day, 2022, that some of the highest selling artists are mm. from the 70s. Pink Floyd, right. the Eagles. Eagles. These are yeah. best-selling records mm-hmm. in, in, in both continents, the North America and Europe. And I'm still very, very impressed. I mean, you listen to Dark Side of the Moon, for example, it does not show its age. It's so right. classic. It's such such a wonderful uh, collection of music. And, of course, Pink Floyd, who could doubt their artistry and talent? So excellent show. Very much enjoy the question. And I'm with you, 70s all the way. Well, I think you explained it even even better than I ever could have. So thank you, Philip. I think that's a great point, the way you explained it. And thank you for the kind words. And thank you for the call. You know, when I was listening to Philip, another thought I had was if you think about 
bands in the 70s, they didn't know it, but they were really in the last decade before all the complications would come along. The first complication being MTV, which if you weren't visually appealing or visual, you were in trouble in the music business. That was that was strike one. Strike two was uh, we got this sort of puritanical streak about lyrics. Remember the uh, the Parents Resource Advisory Council, or whatever the hell that thing was with Tipper Gore. So all of a sudden we're labeling uh, racy or, or suggestive lyrics. That was never done in the 60s and 70s. And then the third strike was the consolidation of the record business itself. So um, it became harder to break through in, in the corporate sense. When you when you think about the, and I'm going to use the, the word, and it will sound crazy, but you'll see what I mean in a minute. When you think about how selfish artists could be in the 70s, they could be selfish about the music, they could be selfish about, I, I wrote the song this way, and this is the way it's going to be, and it's 17 minutes long, and you can't cut it. But by the 80s and 90s, they were uh, not winning those battles anymore. Albums weren't coming out like that anymore. Everything was becoming corporatized and 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 kind of homogenized. And again, MTV. I'm not I'm not hating on MTV, but it changed music. It really did. Radio changed. So yeah, the '70s were kind of the last decade for rock before all the stuff that would inhibit rock came along. And so I I think that was the 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 richest decade for classic rock but you can tell me your answer 210 599 5555 James is on the radio hi James hey jack uh thanks for taking the call hey, i i wanted to point out that uh i can't discount the 60s the 70s is by far the best but the le- the 60 from 64 on was very good you know what i mean well, they were all good. I mean, all those decades were good. I, I guess when I, th- and, and you, maybe you can help me out. When I think of the 60s, the first songs and the first bands I think of are like the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Motown, which is great music, but it's not really classic rock. Well, then you got the, you got the Woodstock era, though. Yeah. And all that, yeah. and all those bands. But, but mm-hmm. the 70s, the thing that's really good about the 70s is it's, it's rock and roll in the early part, and then you got the punk and the disco. You know, yeah, they all divided yeah. up into a couple of years. So, yeah, I don't know. It's tough to choose between the two of them. But it's well, I mean, they all the float. One flows into the other, right? I mean, like you can't have the seventies without what happened in the sixties. And some of those bands that were big in the seventies, they formed in the sixties and they got started. So, you're, I mean, they're all dependent on each other. Each of these decades. But I guess if I had to take a ten-year chunk. I would just say the seventies seem to be the the best ten year chunk, you know. Yeah, I I agree. And also the the thing that really hurt music, I think, is the uh compact disc. Because you don't ha- you didn't have albums anymore. With all the with all the uh notes and all the, the uh the uh yeah. graphics. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Album covers. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, they, I mean they were they were there but they were smaller, they weren't works of art. Um, I, I I don't think I ever read, I don't think I ever read liner notes in a compact disc case. I know they're in there, but you got to take them out and unfold them. But I know I I know I would read the album while I was listening to it. We all did, right? No, and and I, I agree with MTV when it first came out. I, I couldn't stand it. Now it's grown on me, but yeah, it uh, all right. 
Thank you, James. I, I probably will, if you ask me in, in 10 or 15 years, I probably will say the 80s because then I'll be ready to consider the 80s classic rock. I just can't do it. That's because that would make me too old. I don't want to be that old. So the heck with it. I'm in denial. It's not just a river in Egypt. Uh, so I would say 70s. What would you say is your best or favorite classic rock decade? 50s? 60s, 70s, or 80s? It's an opinion question. There's no right or wrong answer. 210-599-5555. I will say, just as somebody that worked in music radio, when you think, and, and Don Cooper, you can chime in on this too. You might, you might have a thought on this. I think the 70s has been the most durable decade of music for staying on the air. Like that music has never not been on the air. Well, you had a a lot of groups come out, especially rock, what you call true rock and roll. You had Led Zeppelin, yeah. ACDC yeah. would come out. Foreigner had come out with yep. many hits yep. during that time period. So that I mean, it, you know, we've had we've had little nostalgia waves when the Big Chill came out. All of a sudden, the '60s were back, and Motown made a few comebacks at various times, um, and, and and that was all great and well deserved, but. That 70s music has never not, since the 70s, has never not been somewhere uh, in airplay. And Wendy is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Wendy, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you, Professor Jack? Doing good. How are you? Good. I'm very good. I agree with you. And you are the smartest guy on radio, so it's (laughs) great that that I agree with you that the 70s are it. When I had my sophomore semi-formal, I won't tell you what year, because then I'll have to, you know, like you, I'll have to admit I'm old. Um, but Stairway to Heaven was our song that they played at our sophomore mm-hmm. semi-formal. Mm-hmm. And so that's always ha- had a nostalgic, you know, thing. But, oh, my gosh, there were too many. Smoke on the Water. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, you just you start listing them, and you realize you're not going to run out of songs for a long, long yep. time. <laughs> yep. Yep. You know, once you start listening to 70s songs, they're just great. And I love them when I'm, like, taking a fast walk or, or working out, which I don't do often enough. But, you know, things like that, when I, ha- I need, want some energy, you know, then I turn to them. That's yep. you know, that's the music to get me going. Yeah. Well said, Wendy, I, I, except for the part about the smartest guy on the radio. But other than that, oh, thank absolutely. you. I, I agree with you, and I appreciate the call. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I do think that... Um, I've noticed something interesting in music, just again, over the, over the period of time I've been in radio. You know, when I got into radio, I worked at music stations. And you came to radio for music. Unless you had an extensive record collection, which most people didn't have, you found, you found a station or stations. Remember, you preset your buttons and you, and that was your, that was your music, right? And what they played was your music. Over the decades, that entire thing has turned around. You don't let anybody pick your playlist for you. You don't let anybody tell you, "Oh, it's uh, five fifty-six. I guess I got to listen to this now because it's what's on." You you seek out your music. When I see how much people are seeking out classic rock, especially the seventies and yeah, the sixties and the eighties as well, that's the ultimate compliment because they're not listening to it because it's just there because some station is playing it. I mean, I don't know. I don't even know what stations are playing anymore, because now people are picking their own music. You're your own radio station now. You're designing your own 
experience. And that's the, the ultimate compliment we can pay that music, is that without anybody curating it, collecting it, organizing it for you, that's the music people are still gravitating toward. And as Philip pointed out, the best-selling, to the extent that people are buying albums and digital and whatever, the best-selling stuff is that stuff. And so I think that makes a pretty good argument for being the strongest classic rock decade. And we also have to give kudos to the fact that um, uh, music technology in the 70s had advanced. I mean, you even had 24-track recording systems at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I listen to like a band like Steely Dan, they were using what was state-of-the-art stuff. And the fact that that still sounds good in today's, you know, uh, earbuds or speakers is a pretty, pretty high compliment. That's a good point, Don. Um, so that's our question on the JR poll in honor of the first ever rock concert from 70 years ago. So, um, so many weird things today. Dr. Fauci is back and he's talking about, uh, we might have to go back to restrictions. Like the 2020 type of restrictions. I got to be honest, I can't prove this. I think people like him would like to go back to those things. Not only because of the power in it, but you know, there's just, there's a kind of person that just liked the way everything was buttoned down and, you know, everybody stood behind the little tape marks on the floor and, you know, I don't know what the word for that is, the psychological term for that is. Is it control freak? I don't know. But there's there are people that that they like being told what to do and put in line, and they want to see other people live that way. They want our society to be organized. They want a a society that is, you know, marshaled. So my question at the start of the show was, if you tried to impose 2020-style lockdowns, you started declaring businesses essential and non-essential. If you said the kids can't go to school, schools are closed, because we've had an uptick in COVID. If you went back to those things, would people rebel? I don't just mean you personally, but what do you think people in general would do? Would people rebel? Would people revolt? Would people do the passive, you know, non-compliance? Or would they comply? 210-599-5555. I don't think people will go back to that or go along with that. I think you had them once. You fooled them once. But not only did they not like it, it didn't work. And it worked against the health and well-being of not only our children, but of people in general. The medicine was worse than the disease. And I, I, I'm not suggesting that we wouldn't do anything differently if there was an uptick. There might be some things that would make sense, but in terms of lockdowns and restrictions and going back to that 20, that, that spring and summer 2020 way of living, I just don't see it. I don't think people will do it. 210-599-5555. And we're talking about, uh, a little bit about China, Russia, and Ukraine. We had Gordon Chang on. He was saying that the Biden administration actually is in a pretty strong position to pressure China not to aid you, uh, to aid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. By the way, um, 
Are you as as uh, sort of intrigued as I am by the Biden administration suddenly getting all hard line about Ukrainian refugees coming into this country? Have you noticed that there is no appetite for that among politicians who have been practically begging people to come into the country? They're not interested in that. And they're they're citing the law and they're saying there's a process and we have to go by the books. And it's the only country I can think of, it's the only circumstance I can think of where people are emigrating and fleeing where this administration and the Democratic Party are not pandering. And I think it's because these are this is a different kind of person, these, these uh, folks fleeing Ukraine. It's not their kind of person. And that kind of gives away the game about what this has really been all about from the beginning. It's not about helping people. It's about helping a political party make its numbers. If you can't do that, if you're someone that doesn't represent that value to them, all the platitudes about we're a nation of immigrants and we're always open to people in trouble and we will never let pe- we'll never close our door to people in need, all of that is not true if it doesn't serve the political purposes of the moment. 210-599-5555, we'll talk about that and get your votes in on the JR poll as well. We've been watching this weather. Uh, you heard Dennis talk about a confirmed... Uh, tornado in the uh, Luling area. Enormous calling in to talk about what she saw a little while ago as well here on KTSA. Uh, Norma, good afternoon. Oh, hello. Oh, where are you, call- where are you calling from? Anybody wanted to come take pictures because it's pretty bad. I'm calling from Kingsbury. Mm-hmm. On, and um, we live on Appling Road. We were on the front porch. We have a large, well, had a large deck porch had a large oak tree, had two large oak trees in the backyard. They're gone. My roof is gone all over the place out there. Mm -mm. There's insulation everywhere. The neighbors uh, were hiding in their bathroom but looking out a little skinny window when all of a sudden a building went by, and that was their storage room building. Mm -mm. And, uh, And then everything just got white outdoors. And, yes, it sounds like a train. I always heard that, but was anyway, this your first was, uh, first time being in one of these? Well, as a girl, I lived in Kansas. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then you you'd been through them before. So, you know, we knew. You know, I, when we were watching on the porch, and we kind of heard that, and it, and it turned white on the horizon out there. Yeah. I go, got to get in. And by the time we went up the ramp, which is maybe thirty feet, we mm-hmm. couldn't get the door open to get wow. in. Wow. I don't know if it was vacuum or pressure or what. Yeah. And then when we did get it in, we lost the door. Oh, my so goodness. We, we hurried ourselves in. I, I have two indoor kitties, which are still hiding. I won't see them, I bet, for a week. I know they're <laughs> in here because they right. get out. Part of my roof is gone. Yeah. There's a tree in my living room. And, oh, my goodness. And we had three horses, which are okay. They're fine. Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah, I just never had one actually strike when I was there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it invited itself right up on our porch, 
and took the roofs off. Oh, well, now I see another little storage building without a roof. And, uh, yeah, it's it, it hit a direct hit on us. Is the We're damage to your house something that could be fixed, or are you going to have to start over? It's going to have to be fixed. And, you know, I don't know that we're we're retired i don't know that we have in well i doubt we have insurance to cover this it's mm. going to be a few thousand dollars probably not mm. i mean at least we don't have to replace the whole thing but right you know three bedroom mobile home needs a roof yeah well it sounds like it could have been a lot <laughs> sounds like it could have been a lot worse so i'm, I'm glad that you're okay worse. and Oh yeah, and the cats and, are know, okay. We properly got scared. My husband yeah. does not get scared very much. He he just yeah. doesn't. And you know, um, he was trying to push me through the door when the mm-hmm. door left us, and uh, there was a big piece of sheet metal came off of the the uh, patio, and I felt it brush up against my muumuu skirt, and now my muumuu has a big cut in it. It did not get me. But it's a big piece mm. of sheet That's metal. a close call. That is a very close call. Very close. And we barely got in, and it was just because he was pushing me so hard. You know, we both were really trying to just get through the yeah. door, over the door, to, over the door jam. And it was so strong, it was it created like this a suction outside. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. We couldn't get the door open because it was a push-in door. Right. Then we got it in and got ourselves in and turned around, the door was gone. So, yeah, yeah we it was close and we're, ner- yeah, I got nervous. I can't find my glasses. Dead gum and I only got one pair. <laughs> oh, man. But we're okay. But yeah. it did, it. yeah, it has tore it up and we'll have to estimate and see if it's worth putting it back together or if we right. just have to, I don't know haul it off and get another mobile home, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But I think yeah. the whole roof is is uh, compromised mm-hmm. in some way. I'm seeing daylight mm-hmm. through one end of the roof and through the living room and through a bedroom spot. And yeah. then when you go outside, there's no uh, covering. Like if it rains, it's just going to come through my ceiling. So I'm going to have to my next. So my next call is to find a roofer. <laughs> and get this fixed so well i'm glad you're okay and thank you that's an incredible story you've just told people that have never seen anything like that what it's really like to go through it so thank you for telling us it was just uh you know i've been around them all my life i was a military brat we were stationed in kansas and nebraska and oklahoma Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. uh, it's always been like you know within five miles but not on my front porch and we were looking it's probably several hundred feet to the to Appling Road, to my out of a long driveway, yeah. and the Appling Road disappeared in white. And I have a horse, little horse barn up there, and my my mare who was running around, she disappeared in white. Now she's okay. We found her, but she was really scared. And yeah. then I, uh, you know, about that time I go, it, you know, it is a tornado get in, and by that time we were struggling to get through the door, and it had already invited itself up on the patio, ripped the patio off, uh, cut my moo-moo, ripped the door off the front, mm. and was trying to suck us back out. <laughs> I'm going, oh, my, oh. So 
Yeah, I don't ever want to be that close ever again. And if I, yeah, I don't let's... have a child in here, or I would have just probably fell apart at this stage. Yeah, you sound like a pretty you sound like a pretty tough person. You sound like a tough person, Norma. So I I I think the storm should be afraid of you, not the other way around. But uh, but thank you for telling us that. I had any choice, so no, uh, you know I don't know. I may have to I may have to put a help me pay for the roof thing out on the internet. (laughs) Anyway, well, listen. um, Yeah, this and we live uh, about two miles east of Kingsbury. Okay. So we're kind of out in the sticks, and, and uh, well, I see it. Well, it the, well, there's a horse trailer now. It's upside down. Okay, well, I guess it got that. We'll have to go out there and see that. All righty. Be careful. Estimate yeah. our problem. I know. Okay. I, Take it slow. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me talk because I needed the vent, and uh, thank your listeners for listening to me. Anytime, Norma. Anytime. Take care. God bless you, and I'm glad you're okay. I really am. And uh, that's an incredible story. Kingsbury, I believe, is in Guadalupe County. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. And um, It's one of the areas we've been watching uh, this afternoon. And there's been um, there's been a few radar-indicated and a few visual uh, tornado reports. I know Dennis is uh, tracking all this in the KTSA newsroom as well. Um, do we have anything any, any anything up to the minute? Anything new that's been? No, the o- only thing that's currently going on right now is uh, that tornado that Norma was talking about, uh, right. which has moved to the east of Luling now, moving out through Caldwell County. But really, it's been that storm, which had been just radar indicated before and then radar confirmed by the National Weather Service, and then the other tornado up by Wimberley, which was visually confirmed by uh, by someone. Uh, but the National Weather Service said that that was a tornado up there as well. So luckily, that's un- unfortunately for the people in those situations, but luckily for the greater area, those are the only issues we're seeing right now. She sounded very calm and... I'll tell you what. I mean, you you could she could be a reporter, Dennis. Yeah. I mean, she had all the she had all the she painted a word picture. I could see it. I could imagine it. It was very uh, matter she, of fact. Just very yeah. This no, we hope it. that she's yeah. We hope that they're okay. And uh, I would I would donate to their GoFundMe if they did one. I know you would too. Uh, Jack here on KTSA two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. We talk about what's in the news and what's going on in our lives. Today was the first day of the hearings for the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. I all, I all I can tell you is um, all of the Democrats that are whining about this hearing and whining about the treatment of Judge Jackson, which has been nothing so far. It's been it's been mild and courteous, but all that th- they can have a great big cup of shut the you know what up because <laughs> they they are the ones who invented the sport. Of going after somebody, hammer and tong, destroying them personally, smearing them, reducing their family to tears, dragging weirdos and 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 hoax people in to tell stories that aren't true and can't be proven. I hope that the Republicans don't do that to Judge Jackson because I don't think that's right. I don't wish it on her. I don't think she's really susceptible to that anyway she seems like a good person but but i mean good grief if they did actually think that was going to happen you guys invented it you know the democrats complaining about circus atmosphere at a supreme court hearing that would be like that would be like thomas edison saying there's too many damn light bulbs around you know 210-599-5555 all right so we're gonna talk about that we're gonna talk about 
this um, NCAA uh, swimming controversy. There's a swimmer now uh, at Virginia Tech who's explained why this is a problem. For people who've said, why can't we just move on from this? Why does this have to be a scandal? Why am I still hearing about it? There is a reason. And if it isn't something that touches you or that you can relate to, I think all of us must know we must have a daughter, a niece, a granddaughter, a daughter of a family friend or somebody. Um, These um, NCAA athletic competitors are also scholars. They're also people starting out in life. And um, they're getting robbed right in front of us. And it has to be said. When even Caitlyn Jenner (laughs) gets it, you have to get it. Six thirty-seven on five fifty and one zero seven one KTSA. Jack Riccardi. This half hour, the results on the Stevens Roofing JR poll. I mentioned this uh, swimmer at uh, Virginia Tech, Rika Georges. She um, is standing up about this um, business of allowing biological males to compete in women's sports calling it disrespectful. She wrote an open letter to the NCAA. Um, She's from Hungary. She competed in the Olympics. Uh, She's been uh, going to Virginia Tech. She's a two-time ACC champion there, two-time All-American. She writes very respectfully and very eloquently. She talks about how everybody's heard about the transgender swimmer Leah Thomas, and she says that she respects uh, Leah Thomas, um, understands the sacrifices, the practice, the training, pushing yourself to the limit to be the best athlete you can be. I'm writing this letter, hopes that the NCAA will open their eyes and change these rules in the future. It doesn't promote our sport in a good way, and I think it is disrespectful against the biologically female swimmers who are competing. And then she tells the story of how it has gone down to have male competitors in female sports and um she's basically saying you guys aren't thinking this through you you don't realize what how this is going to end up but then i also read a um a really great column by another young woman who um is now out of college but she told her story growing up. She had a hard, kind of a hard luck background, and the family was struggling. She had a single mom, and she got a scholarship to go to a college, a little college. And um, that scholarship was the only thing that um, made it possible for her to go to school. She went on a track scholarship to this little college. And uh, she says, Track gave me structure. I learned time management, dedication. It forced me to maintain a high grade point average. 
College athletes also have a higher graduation rate, uh, specifically 90% of D1 student athletes. Would I have been able to athletically compete in college if I or other women like me had to compete physically against men? And then she talks about the biological differences between men and women. Men are biologically different even on hormone blockers. Women's lungs are smaller. Their bones are less dense. They're shorter. Even before puberty, biological males have an athletic competitive advantage over biological females. And then she talks about all the things that she did in college uh, besides being on the track team. She joined uh, a sorority and she joined a, a women's club. And um, she met women who were interning on Capitol Hill. And she uh, learned about internships that way. And she became the president of her sorority. She writes, would I have been able to gain leadership skills if I or other women like me had to compete against men for these opportunities? Sororities offered training programs, mentorship, conferences, social organization for women to feel powerful, empowered. Statistically, sorority women account for six of our first ladies, 32 U.S. congressmen, the first female astronaut, multiple Fortune 500 CEOs. How women are treated and afforded opportunities, she writes, impacts their ability to be successful later in life. That's why what happens to women in college matters. It's a great point. While everybody's talking about Leah Thomas's feelings, it's time, and it sounds like it's beginning to happen, somebody pointed out there is a reason why men and women organize and do things, whether it's competitive or fraternal or whatever, separately. She says, allowing transgender and non-binary students to enroll in these activities will take away opportunities for other women to thrive and institutions created to nurture the success of women. She writes, women's colleges have programs that exist specifically for women. And there's a reason. And she avoids the whole who's better, men or women. She says it's not about better or worse. It's just about different. Women do things differently. They learn differently. They think differently. They compete differently. She writes, women deserve the proper space to be taught specifically for them. Biological men that identify as women are invading an area created for women. First women accomplishments are already being stolen from women. The first woman to win more than a million dollars on Jeopardy is a biological male. The first woman to hit 47.63 seconds in women's swimming Ivy League 100-yard freestyle is also male. The first four-star admiral commissioned woman, Rachel Levine, is a man. Using the term women, W-O-M-X-N or W-O-M-Y-N, completely takes away the importance of being a woman. Women, she writes, deserve to be celebrated and appreciated. But instead, the political left struggles to define women and dismiss being a woman as a feeling. She writes, being a woman is not a feeling. It's something that is biologically embedded into a woman's body and mind. I'm not a birthing person, she writes. I'm not an assigned female. I am a woman, and that is something I am proud to be. Amen. Why are we even having to say this? Why aren't more people saying it? 
why isn't every woman who's ever had or is now having the experiences she writes about speaking up? Well, you know the answer. There's o- there's only one possible explanation for why everything she just described is powerful. So it has to be something even more powerful that's causing people to hold in their silence with frustration. And that is that good people don't want to be called bad names. Good people do not want the label of bigot, homophobe, hater, or whatever the epithet would be. You know, we're going to find out I think in the in the coming years, we're going to find out if the feminist movement, which has been going on most of your life and mine, is durable or not. This is the test of it. It's going to turn out to be, you know, I, I'm sure this is not the test they saw coming. But this is going to be the test of whether we have built and raised women with true confidence. Because this these are opportunities that are being taken away from them, and they're being taken away from them by entities and forces that they would have expected would have defended them. You would have expected the NCAA to be the most robust defender of women's sports, right? I mean, who else? No. You would have expected colleges that have these programs and women's colleges and the coaches and the parents and parents sacrifice every bit as much as the athlete does, right? If you're a mom or dad and you've been taking your kid to early morning practices for years and driving all over the state for tournaments, no one needs to tell you about how much you've sacrificed. We're going to find out if there if there's strength in that or not. But right now, I think people are afraid. Good for these women for standing up and saying what they're saying and saying it well. I hope when they look behind them, they're not... Saying it alone. 210-599-5555. The, the, probably the, the greatest line in this whole thing, I can't believe I'm going to say this, came from Caitlyn Jenner, who the other day said, and I quote, I had the balls to stand up for women in women's sports. <laughs> I mean, you know, she did. Or he did, or however you want to say it. JR Poll results tonight across all of our platforms. What was your favorite classic rock decade? On this, the 70th anniversary of what many people believe is the first ever rock concert put on in Cleveland on this day in 1952. What's your favorite classic rock decade? 51% tonight. So just over half said the 70s, 1970s. 23%, almost a quarter, said the 60s. And then we had a tie. 13% said the 80s, and 13% said the 50s on our JR poll. So 70s followed by 80s. I'm sorry, 70s followed by 60s, and then 80s and 50s in the in the back, in the rear guard action. And that was our JR poll. New question tomorrow at 4 or anytime. You can find the JR poll anytime at KTSA.
com. And I mentioned this earlier, Alan Freed was the pioneering rock and roll disc jockey. He did a radio show. He started um, started doing this radio show. This was back when, when disc jockeys could play what they wanted to play. And he decided um, he was on at night, and he was a gimmicky kind of self-promoting guy, which you also had to be back then. So he decided he was going to play what they called race records, which were black artists. And he was going to play them on white radio stations. This is where he worked. And he called his show the Freeditorium. And then he started nicknaming, nicknaming himself the Moondog because he was on at night and the show was called the Moondog's House. And that first concert on this day in 1952 was called the Moondog Coronation Ball. And he started using the term rock and roll for what had been called race music or rhythm and blues. And um, as you know, I'm sure you know all this, but you know, in the 50s, you started having white artists like Elvis cover these songs that had been done by black artists. Well, Alan Freed's thing was he wouldn't play the white covers. He would continue to play the original uh, artists. And then he made the jump from Cleveland to New York City, I think it was in 1954 or 55, and um, took his gimmick there, started promoting concerts in the old Paramount Theater uh, in Manhattan, which if you've ever seen a skyline of Manhattan, the Paramount Building is that building that has like a clock embedded in the top of its tower. And it was an office building. It, it still is, I believe, uh has offices for Paramount, but the ba- the uh, street level was a theater, and it had been a movie theater, but it, it, they also could host concerts, and he would do these concerts at the Paramount Theater. And um, he got in trouble. He got an ABC show at one point. It got canceled because he wasn't keeping white and black apart. And um, he also got dragged in or was rumored to have been involved in the scandals where they were taking money to play records and stuff like that. And then he died young. He uh, had had some problems with alcohol and drugs. But anyway, his his um, influence, however, is it, it may be a little exaggerated. He may have exaggerated a little bit. But his influence was basically to pull together a kind of music with a listener who might never have heard it otherwise. It might have been elsewhere on the radio dial, but he was now playing it on your station, on the station you listen to. And um, that's really the story. If you think about it, that's really that's the story of of everything in our culture. It's about connecting this thing over here that somebody made with that person over there that hasn't heard it, seen it, experienced it that's you know that's what you do right and he did it and the whole idea that cleveland is the home of rock and roll that the rock and roll hall of fame is there it's the rock and roll city um that all in large part not entirely but in large part is uh because of alan freed and um and i think to be honest there were probably a lot of guys doing what he did some of them might have been doing it before him. But there's always one guy or gal, there's always one person who creates the illusion that they are doing something that no one else 
is doing or that no one had done until they did it, right? That's that's one of those things. You see that in everything, right, in fashion and music. and every, There's always that one person that lays claim to, well, I'm the one that invented this. I'm the one that started this. All those other people are doing it because of me. They're all copying me. And Alan Freed had that reputation. So, so happy 70th birthday, rock and roll. I think it's funny that the first rock concert ever had to be broken up by the police. <laughs> A sign of what was to come. Well, thanks, everybody, who voted in our JR poll. Hope you enjoyed that, and I uh, enjoyed hearing all the different uh, theories about the decades. Hope you made it through the storm safely, and we'll catch you back here on the radio tomorrow at 4 or anytime on demand at KTSA.com.